Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Burnout. Are we all stressed? And Why? Have the pandemic lockdowns added to the stress of growing economic pressures and always-on tech culture? Also, peace in our time, Ireland's fishing community takes on the Russians over the controversial war games off our coast. He, in turn, has given us assurances he will carry our concerns and our requests back to Moscow. Later, we look back at the big news stories of the week as the country got back to our new normal... Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. the stress and strain of modern life. Our recent experiences of the pandemic, lockdowns and restrictions seem to have just added to the experience of burnout already caused by economic pressures and our always-on tech and work culture. I'm joined here by author and GP Dr Harry Barry, Dr Katrina O'Sullivan from Maynooth University and former TD and Junior Minister Finian McGrath. GP Dr Alona Duffy also joins us via Skype. Uh, Alona, an Oireachtas committee has heard this week that Ireland is facing a serious shortage of GPs as doctors struggle to cope with high workloads, burnout and stress. I take it um, what was spoken about in front of that Thal committee would not surprise you in the slightest. It doesn't. And I think there were some very stark figures shared at that committee. I mean, we have the third lowest rate of GPs per capita in the OECD. So I think that kind of says it all. Um, We need to almost, I mean, realistically, we're probably going to need to double the GPs. But according to the HAC figures, just to keep up with, with what's expected with regards to increased population and an aging population, we're going to have to have at least another 1,600 GPs in the next few years. So um, again, I'm not sure where they're going to come from, but we urgently need them. It's always been a stressful job, uh, but burnout in the healthcare sector is something that really came into sharp focus in the past two years. Can you describe the impact um, of, I suppose, the pandemic on the healthcare sector as a whole, as you see it, someone working at the front line, but also really aware of colleagues in our hospitals and elsewhere um, who've actually had to be right at the forefront of the response to this pandemic and the impact that it's had on them? Well, I think we all know this happened like a bolt out of the blue without warning. And all of us in in every aspect of healthcare were landed into a situation of which we had no knowledge. We kind of realised this virus was very serious. We were seeing rapidly rising death rates amongst our patients in the community that especially impacted us in general practice because these were people we knew. These were mainly elderly patients who'd been with us in our practice for many, many years. So suddenly it was about our patients, but it was also about how do we keep our staff safe? How do we keep ourselves? 
safe and similarly in the hospital setting. So all of that was new. Uh, everything changed. You were trying to look after patients' other needs while not being able to see them, very definitely not being able to see them in the very early weeks and then trying to kind of sort things out that we could continue to see people like our pregnant patients provide maternity care, babies to give the baby vaccines. So I think all of that was exceptionally stressful. But I think we can all manage with a certain amount of stress for a short period of time. The challenge with this is that the stress has just kept coming and coming. There's never been a lull. We've never got back to normal to be able to go back to our normal workload, be able to kind of down get that downtime and get to relax again. And that's where the burnout is happening. So we are seeing it in the hospital sector. We're seeing it where we're seeing nurses opting out, moving away, moving abroad, or just leaving nursing. And we're very definitely seeing it in general practice. Doctors, um, I suppose, are, are it's easier for us to continue working for longer than our consultant colleagues were not limited by having to retire at 65. And always many GPs have worked long beyond that, including my own dad who worked until this year at 86. But what we're finding now is GPs are saying, enough is enough. I'm not going to be able to continue mm -hmm. at this. So yeah. I think it's it's really difficult. And I think what you're saying reflects many people, not just in the healthcare sector, but how we're looking now at our lives and how we've been managing to hold it all together. Something like the pandemic, um, Katrina, threw everything up in the air, changed all our routines and has made us reevaluate how we live now, hasn't it? What's yeah. your research shown? Because you looked specifically at the impact of the last couple of years on families. Yeah, so our research has really shown the impact that the pandemic has had on uh, women in the household, particularly working mothers and adolescents, the psychological impact of being separated from friends and family for a long period of time. But women particularly, we, we've observed, have actually been really, really stressed. I think as, as a woman myself and a working mother and I'm trying to manage the family and get to work and get it. With COVID, it just brought everything into the home. We were homeschooling, we were listening to the stresses, we were trying to protect our children. We we're also trying to ensure that our jobs were kept and that we were performing as well as we were before. And this is what we observed in all our interviews. And I think over two years, the stress of that has just really, really put pressure on women. And I'm worried about what's going to happen now that it's over. How are we going to come out of this in a way that, I suppose, keeps the movement of feminism in place, that doesn't push women back, especially working women, and that we still feel as if we can, you know, separate ourselves from our family it's life. In it's interesting what you're talking about, separation there, because... In many ways, we were always under stress, as everyone was, yeah. but many aspects of our life were compartmentalised. So, say, issues around childcare, you know, home life, family life, all of these things, but it's all of that coming together at that very moment and tossing out the routine yeah. that had that sort of shock impact on people's lives. Exactly. And what we saw in our research, we, we, we surveyed um, hundreds of women, like 15% of, of the women, the working women we surveyed, they actually opted out of the workforce. And they were, these were women who were pharmacists. They had goods, they were professionals, but they just felt that this was the last the last straw in an already stressful situation. And I know lots of people found this stressful, but my worry now is the idea of staying remote, staying at home, keeping keeping the work life in the home is a, is a pressure I'm worried about mm -hmm. for myself. I like to leave my house. I like to leave the children behind. I have my own identity when I'm away from them. And we are hearing a lot about the dilemma facing a lot of people now. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But um, Finian, from your point of view, um, for you and your family, it has been more difficult um, than for many others. Tell us about your own circumstances and how you managed 
through this pandemic? Well, <clears throat> well essentially, what I, did, I went from frontline politics as a TD and a minister into uh, when I resigned from frontline politics into being a full-time carer because I have a daughter with an intellectual disability. And all of a sudden, within the first few days, the services, the day services were just closed down. Now, there, there are 24,000 people with uh, adults, young adults with an intellectual disability in day services. There are another 8,900 residential services. And all of a sudden, there was this closure and that caused very bad trauma for these families. There was a lot of isolation. There was a lot of uh, people getting really upset, uh, upset and traumatized by it, particularly the person with the disability. But then the families and like myself and the carers also had the other fear was, the first one was the first few weeks, you may remember Claire, people were, were talking about the vulnerable groups mm -hmm. and we were afraid of the health aspect to our children. And we, just, we were just hoping and praying that our children could get the vaccine as quickly as possible. But the other, the other issue then was, the, the, the other important point was that uh, we, we found ourselves as well, listen to the figures coming through every day in the news. And a figure that's often not mentioned, I remember May was a particularly bad time because we had uh, 14 deaths in, uh, of young people with disabilities and something like uh, 490 cases. And that sent a big shiver through all the carers of the country, through all the disability people, but particularly the disabled people themselves. So the people with disabilities had a really tough COVID and it's often not part of the broader debate and a broader agenda. We talk about the impact on college students, yes, the impact on children, but I often feel sometimes that children and adults, with, particularly with intellectual disabilities, were often left out of that debate and I think that's important that we remind ourselves that that has to be dealt with. As uh, well. And when we look back and when we review this, I think I think it will be one group that we will specifically look at and say, you know, the, the issue around day services being pulled and all of those yeah. things impacting on on our very vulnerable and how that had a knock-on effect see, on the their routine, entire yeah, community the, the, around the, the them. Route, the routine and the stability of the service. When I drop my daughter out every morning at half eight to her, now she's back in her day service now, thanks be to God, and she's loving it, right? But that, that routine was all of a sudden pulled. And if you have an intellectual disability, you're missing your key worker, you're missing the staff that you like, and all of a sudden it's gone. And that was very traumatic on the people with disabilities. But just on the physical disability aspect, there are thousands of people as well who are blind and physically disabled who were often and felt very isolated during the last two years and that's another issue that we have to focus on. Um, Dr Harry Barry there's nothing new in burnout. Uh, yeah. You say this is this is endemic I in think society. It's endemic. Well the first thing I think is, yeah, is about burnout. What I mean, is burnout? Everybody's Tell us about the using traits. the term but nobody's ever describing. Uh, burnout is where we, we experience what we call toxic stress or chronic stress which is present consistently for a greater period than three months. So that we, pretty well at the moment, I would say there's very, very few sections of our society, uh, you know, mothers, carers, young people, older people, uh, that really weren't hammered by the last two years. On top of, an, in my opinion, we were living lives of quiet desperation in many cases. There were a lot of mums living lives of quiet desperation. So I think toxic stress is really where we're exhausted, we're demotivated, uh, where we're, we're tired but wired, we're not sleeping, we're not eating properly, we're not exercising, we're getting consumed by technology, we're drinking too much, uh, we're irritable with those we love, we're, we, we're not enjoying life, and we sometimes nearly become apathetic, hopeless, mm -hmm. uh, and all of these things, I think, it, everybody out there 
Uh, I often say when I'm talking to groups, hands up anybody who doesn't feel like this. Do you know what I mean? Because so many of us felt like that. The, obviously, the medical, the medical services got absolutely hammered. But right across the whole spectrum of society, uh, burnout is present all over the place. And, and burnout you know, was present before, before the Before it, but it has really been consolidated. And I think there were many groups who were just about coping, particularly mums, you know, families, young families who were just about coping, and this just tipped them over. Mm -hmm. And I think we all have to start talking about it. The mental health effects of that are, are quite uh, significant because people are going to get more anxious, there's more depression, there's more self-harm, there's more alcohol misuse. And we're not talking about these things. And it's, it's a quiet uh, bubbling, uh, you know, underneath the surface. You know, you can do all your surveys, but you're not going to find a lot. It's going to start bubbling up to the surface, I think, over the next period. Il Ilona, um, from your perspective, what you're hearing, what we're hearing there from Harry um, about that, that burnout and all the traits that are involved there, did you see many people coming into the family practice or even talking to them remotely because that's the way it had to happen for such a large amount of, of, of the past two years? Um, talking about those stresses, uh, did you see how it manifested itself in families? We've seen many, many, and every day in general practice, these are the type of presentations we're seeing. And yes, they definitely are on the rise. And I suppose there's that sense that we're coming out of things now, and therefore there's an expectation, oh, well, sure, it'll be all right now. But I think the reality of it is this chronic anxiety and stress has been there for some period of time. And many people suffering in silence, not being able to come and talk about it, not being able to access services that they need. So we're actually seeing a further rise at the moment. Because again, even that return to normal, I mean, for, for almost two years, people have been told, stay away from others, stay at home, limit your contacts. And now we're telling you, it's OK, you can go back to work. You can you don't have to worry about anything anymore. And I think that's also creating its own anxiety. Yeah. So we, we now need to look at how do we move forward and how do we do something about it? And I think that's where this review post-COVID that's been undertaken by the HSE has not just to be about the acute response, but it's also about the learning and the areas, especially we know all of healthcare is struggling with regards to resources, but specific areas such as mental health, access to psychology, etc. That's so vital and will be all the more important now. Yeah, uh, Katrina, you know, I'm struck by that, you know, in the past um, few weeks, few days since the announcement around the lifting of restrictions, while there's relief, there's also that anxiety yeah. and uncertainty about what's ahead, especially if you're in a remote working environment, you're working from home, and now you're kind of trying to navigate your way through the lifting of these restrictions and getting back to the way things were. Yeah. And that readjustment, probably, you know, ramping up your life again in a way. Yeah brings its own difficulties, doesn't it? Does. It does, and I, I think, and it was interesting to hear what Harry said, and Finian, one thing that we saw, and, and as, a, as a working mother myself, I, I remember at Christmas time, just gone, there was, a there was talk of the schools maybe not opening, and I remember sitting at my kitchen table and, and just crying. And I, and I don't have a child with special education needs or an elderly parent that I need to, to worry about might get COVID. I have a pretty healthy family, and we're, but I remember sitting there thinking, I cannot 
do this again. I and I, you know, I'm quite resilient. And I and now that we're we're moving back, I'm talking to other women, other professionals, other academics, and and a lot of them are saying we're going to work from home, a hybrid model, because it's easier for them to keep doing everything. And so I I, I really do hope that there's a chance for us to really make proper decisions and slowly move back and respect each other and what we need. I, I definitely agree. In our interviews, we, we had mothers who were caring for children with special education needs, dyslexic children, who, they'd lost their places in schools. We really need now to support those people who've missed out on not only two years of services, but also two years of, of being able to flourish. Benin, did you reach those points, um, those points that really as a family you thought, how will we get through this? How will we we, we cope with all of this, those very low points that, that we've spoken about. Oh, yeah, I mean, my first thing, though, that I, what I always say is that you have to focus on, in my case, the person with the disability. So the three things that jumped out at me during the COVID was uh, anxiety, loneliness and sadness for the person with disability. And then when I was talking to other parents right across our disability community, that was the constant theme coming across. So then, but in relation to myself as a full-time care, yes, there are times when you kind of go into that space and it is very difficult, but I'd always be kind of looking for the positive as well. So I began to come up with strategies as well to do different things, to, to keep myself busy, keep my daughter busy. But at the same time, the joke was, there's only so many times you can go for a walk with your daughter in Clontarf and she doesn't get fed up with you. Yeah. <laughs> So there are situations <laughs> like that. And then, of course, once I, I ended up in an A&E uh, in the middle of the COVID as well. And uh, the funny part of it just shows you the resilience of some people with disability. My daughter has Down syndrome. And when we arrived in the A&E, she brought her phone with her because coming on at half 10 was her Zoom class coming from Prosper Fingal Service to teach her her dance class oh. was coming on Zoom. Yeah. So she was in the, in, in, in the unit with the two nurses trying to get the veins to set her up and she had the thing ready and she was watching 20 past 10, 25 past 10. As soon as half 10 came on, she puts on the things and she starts doing the shapes and the two nurses just had a, a, a roar. But it kind of showed the resilience. There she was, a young woman with intellectual disability. She wanted to, not to miss her dance class. And so it shows the resilience and yeah. the positivity and bravery that a lot of them had. But just to go back to the point about Alona mentioned about the review, I, I think it's important as well that when the review is done, we focus on make sure those, those young people with disabilities are assessed. But mm. number two is also the things that we did right during the COVID. There was a lot of good things that we, we remember. Well. Yeah, that, that we remember that worked, those. That was good practice. And I take them with important. us. Harry, on solutions <clears throat> and I suppose how people you know, can help themselves right now. Yeah. Um, what can we do? I think this is really important. I, I, I would really pick out a couple of areas. Firstly, we all have to start looking again at our lifestyle. I know it's boring everybody. I know everybody wants to go off and make a cup of tea. But it's your lifestyle is actually going to decide how, whether you come out of this well or not. So you've got to, we've got to kind of get back to our basics, make sure we're eating properly, exercising properly, getting enough sleep, eight hours sleep. If you're, as we're, most of us are obsessed with technology, cut back on your technology. You don't need it. It's hyping up your brain. It's making you even more. Look at your alcohol intake. Uh, and then I think look at your work-life balance as best you possibly can. And then I think as a group, I, I, a couple of very important points. It's the situation that's abnormal, not us. So stop, stop being hard on ourselves, be kind to ourselves. 
the next thing we have to do is we have to start re-socialising again, in order to reconnecting with all those people that we've lost. Because that's what's making us, the more we all go in to the nuclear family, into the nuclear thing, the more chronic distress we're going to get. So we need to re-establish those things, get back to doing normal things as best we can. It's going to take us all about six to 12 months to gradually crawl our way out of this hole and get, but we will do it, but we have to start with all these simple, simple basics. That's how you manage. There's no big bang here. There's no magic thing. It, it, it took a long time, time to get into this mess and it's going to, to take a little bit of time to get out. But if we do all those things, we will get there. Yep. Uh, well, just to let you know, you can contact Helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines um, if you want any further advice. My thanks to Alona, Katrina, Harry and Finian. Uh, next, the growing global crisis over Russian war games off our southern coast. Stay with us. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome back. International tensions are continuing to grow tonight between the West and Russia over Ukraine. Let's go to London and join news correspondent Ali Barish for the latest on The View in Western capitals of this growing global crisis. Things have been escalating now over a number of days. It went back much further than that, of course. Where are we at now in, in, in the response from, from Western countries to what's happening? Well, one of the key set pieces on Friday will be Emmanuel Macron, the French president, speaking, uh, we expect, over the telephone to Russian President Vladimir Putin. That is just the latest round of diplomacy. One key development we've had over the last 24 hours or so is the Americans saying that they would stop the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline operating, which is due to supply in a multi-billion dollar project, Russian gas to Western Europe. Crucially also, the Germans saying that they might place sanctions on that Nord Stream project. That is tougher language than we've heard from uh, Germany when it comes to Russia and Ukraine as well. From the British perspective, uh, Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, has been in the Netherlands. He's been in Germany himself, pushing for tougher stances from those countries uh, versus Russia on the Ukraine issue. He was also at Brussels, in Brussels, talking to NATO this week, suggesting that the UK might be prepared to uh, boost its troop numbers in NATO's eastern flank. So there are all sorts of angles in which 
which this is developing. And crucially, we have those American proposals uh, or responses to Russian demands which have been submitted in writing. Central to those Russian demands is the idea that Ukraine can never become a NATO member. Well, the Americans are making it clear that while they won't tell us exactly what is in uh, their submission to Moscow, uh, that that is not up for debate, neither is Ukrainian sovereignty. So the Russian uh, stance does not appear to be making much progress in Western capitals. Uh, by the same token, the Russian build-up on the Ukrainian border uh, is very much toughening as well. Uh, it, it remains to be seen exactly whether either side is going to give any ground here and, crucially, therefore, uh, where things might develop next. We do expect British diplomats to be in Moscow and Kiev next week with Ben Wallace, the UK Defence Secretary, and Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, expected to visit Moscow at some point in the next week or so. But Liz Truss, crucially, is also due to visit Kiev. OK, Oli Barris, thank you for bringing us the very latest um, on this uh, global crisis, the latest from London there. Thanks to you, Oli. Well, staying uh, with the crisis here at the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney has told us all he has no questions uh, about the head of Ireland's defence forces posing for a picture with the Russian ambassador, despite Ireland's opposition to the naval exercises that are planned for next week. The chief is holding a number of pro forma meetings at the moment uh, with members of the diplomatic corps, as a new chief of staff would be expected to do. They have, as you would expect, been fully briefed by the chief of staff. I spoke to him again last night. Um, and I have absolutely no reservations or questions about his actions. Well, for more on this, I'm joined now by Sinn Féin's Foreign Affairs and Defence spokesperson John Brady and independent TD Cahill Berry. You're both very welcome along to the programme. We heard from Simon Coveney there having to uh, clarify comments in the doll, having to explain himself today. What do you make of those comments that he made to the parliamentary party, John Brady, and how it's playing out today? Well, I think uh, the minister's uh, comments at what was very much a, a public meeting, albeit a parliamentary meeting, we know anything that is said within those meetings um, of Fianna Gael are, are very much uh, public. Uh, so I, I think they were ill-judged. I, I, I think, again, it, it showed um, a minister um, who is essentially a liability that when we need uh, calm, rational thinking, rational heads uh, to move a, a diplomatic um, solution to what is an international crisis, we have the minister causing a major distraction, um, dragging the chief of staff of the defence forces into a, a political uh, squabble um, and being forced to come into the chamber this morning and, and give clarity and apologise uh, to the chief of staff. And I think given the serious nature we're in, and given the fact that we hold a seat on the Security Council, I think the Minister's focus and attention should be in trying to progress a diplomatic solution uh, to this crisis instead of causing another crisis mm. um, and being embroiled in more now, controversy. He was asked about that tweet. He was asked about the meeting. How should he have answered that question? What should he think about it? Well, look, I, I, I think if, uh, the Minister had concerns around the timing of what I, I, I think is um, an acceptable thing uh, for the Chief of Staff to do is, is meet all of the embassies and all of uh, the ambassadors, given that he is newly appointed to the position. But if the Minister had concerns around the timing of that, I, I think it would have been appropriate for the Minister uh, to take it up privately uh, with the Chief of Staff. And, rather and push than it aside at the parliamentary meeting. Rather than, um, you know, um, 
create controversy um, embroil the chief of staff in in this controversy and, and take the focus away from where it needs to be and in, in terms of the concerns that Irish yeah. people have regarding uh, the naval exercise due to take place off the southern coast next week and the military build-up on all sides on the Ukrainian Let, border. Let's talk about those those naval drills that are taking place and due to take place next week. A lot of focus, a lot of attention um, on them. We had the fishermen meeting um, with the Russian ambassador today. Um, everyone's lining up to meet, it seems, with the Russian ambassador, Cahill. Um, what um, do you make... How concerned are you, essentially, about what's happening and what the Russians say is standard procedure, um, regular drills that were scheduled to take place? It's a, it's a very concerning development, for sure. What we have at the moment is we have five Russian vessels moving down the Norwegian coast. They're probably going to overnight on the coast of Scotland over the weekend and push on down to the exercise area then, probably Monday or Tuesday of next week. So it's three warships, very, very powerful warships. We've got a, a missile cruiser, um, a missile frigate and a destroyer. So these are very, very powerful warships plus two support vessels as well. So the reason they chose that area down at the southwest coast of Cork is they know it's a blind spot from a European point of view because Ireland has ridiculously mm -hmm. um, underfunded its defence forces for decades. So they know it's a blind spot. They also know it's a pressure point. They know it's an Achilles heel because a lot of, a lot of ships, a lot of aircraft, and a lot of underwater cables pass through the area as well. So if they wanted to squeeze the European Union, they could certainly do it from that point. And the third reason is they can apply a lot of pressure to Ukraine and, and to Ireland from that location. Because their, their pattern of behaviour over the last little while is they're squeezing the neutral countries in, Ireland, uh, in, in Europe. They're squeezing Sweden, Finland, Ukraine obviously, and now Ireland as well. Okay, um, you say the other neutral countries. Let's talk about what Sweden and Finland are doing then. How are they responding? How should you respond as a neutral country um, to what is perceived to be a, a threat? Well, first of all, Sweden and Finland are proper neutral countries. We're not a neutral country. We just claim we are. Uh, so there's obligations... OK, explain that. Yeah, so because that's something that we've, you know, it's been held in high esteem, Ireland's neutrality, um, you know, placing us, you know, obviously within Europe, but maintaining that neutral stance that, it, that is so important. So explain yeah. how we're not. It's, it's a great question. So there's obligations on neutral states. So if you wish to claim to be a neutral state, you have to, you're obliged to be able to, for instance, patrol your own seas, police your own skies. Now, we can't police our own skies because we haven't invested in our Air Corps. Uh, so we need the Royal Air Force to do it for us. So by definition, we have a defence arrangement with another sovereign country. So by definition, we're not a neutral country, whether we claim to be or not. Yeah, and of course, you know, we are seen to, to be, you know, allies of the US and, and the, the UK. When we have the RAF helping us in that regard, and then we have, you know, the flights into Shannon and all of that. Neutrality, it's, is it a strange word to be using with respect to Ireland in this day and age? No, I, I think it's something that the Irish people hold core uh, to our principles that we are and, and should be uh, military uh, neutral. Um, Do you think we I, are, I, though, John? Well, look, I, I, I think um, the arrangement that the Irish government have entered in, in terms of uh, PESCO, the further um, you know, um, development and inclusion in um, the EU militarisation project, um, I have serious concerns about that. I have serious objections to that. Um, I, I think 
um, you know, we should be uh, neutral. And now you have concerns, not just in terms of uh, the Russian Navy carrying out military exercises off the southern coast, have also called into question uh, British Navy exercises being carried out, out off our coast, which have also impacted on our, our fishermen being forced out of Irish waters, uh, impact on uh, biodiversity and, and marine life. I've also called into question the use of Shannon uh, by the US. So if we're serious about being a, a military or a neutral country, and I've heard uh, the minister and others talk about our, our uh, neutral stance, I, I think we have to be serious about that. Um, and, and what does we, it mean we, we being serious so. about that? Does that well, mean I, I, I think we need, we need to invest in our own defence forces so that we can live up to our obligations. We have a defence forces that has been depleted so much so that out of nine uh, naval vessels, we struggle to put five to sea at any one time. And our um, offshore, our, our waters, are 10 times the size of, of our, our land mass. And at any one time, we're only able to put a, a couple of ships out to sea. We have a responsibility for every, everything at, at sea level, everything in the sky, and everything subwater. At this moment in time, we cannot see what's happening in the sky, and we cannot see what's happening under the water. We re rely on other countries to do that for us. And I so think that's that a, is that's a, a That's grave, what's going to happen mistake. next week, is we, we won't know directly maybe what's up. Maybe the fishermen may have more of an idea. Um, but but uh, essentially, we're going to be relying on the likes of the RAF to, to tell us exactly what's going on out there. Well, look, essentially so. And I, I think, unfortunately, this may be used to further um, involve us in the EU militarisation project, where we have not just the RAF, but we have other European countries coming in to plug the major gaps that we have within our own uh, defence uh, capabilities. So, you know, we, we, we need to invest in our defence forces. We need to ensure that, you know, the thousand members of the defence forces that were short of a, a full um, deployment, that's, that's sorted. That's fixed that we don't have the major dropout of um, you know excellence and, and the skill set that we have in a, a fantastic uh, defence forces. Yeah, as former special forces yourself Cahoberry um, it's obviously a, an area you're hugely invested in but let's talk about what the Russians may be doing there um, you know the whole issue around underground cables and mm. those key you know connectivity cables yeah. that are under the sea that we know little about but are very important in our lives. Do you think that there is sort of a threat around there or else is it just that mere presence that says, look, we, we can target this should we need to? Is Absolutely. that what it is? So you've got, you've got it in mind, there's an implied threat by their presence. So really this is a big game of chess. This is gunboat diplomacy. They've placed three, they're going to place three significant warships sitting on top of our cables. And the implied threat is we can cut them anytime they want. So if there's a kinetic operation in Ukraine, um, the West will most likely respond with sanctions. And what Russia is saying is, if the sanctions are, are too severe, we're going to start snipping. And that's really what they're saying. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to be really... Are they saying that, though? Oh, th see, this is what the great powers do. So when the Irish Defence Forces go on exercise, they teach their soldiers and their sailors and their aircrew skills. And they develop leadership skills and character skills and marksmanship skills. When the great powers go on exercise, they're flexing their muscles and they're communicating with each other physically. And particularly when you choose a live fire exercise, that's, that's a, a statement that we are serious here. We have live weapons okay. and we're prepared to use them. John Brady, were you trying to flex a bit of muscle when you met with the Russian ambassador this week? We know that they're clearly he's on a, a charm offensive. So what was your agenda in meeting with Yuri Filatov?
Well, look, certainly I'm on no charm offence if the Rus Russian ambassador may be so. I, I requested a meeting with the ambassador. I, I met with him yesterday um, in uh, the embassy um, just to reiterate my party's concerns, not just to the naval operation off the, the southern coast, um, but also the escalation in, in terms of the crisis um, within uh, Ukraine. Um, and I, 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 I timing around that. that. I mean, do you think there's any issue with that, with that meeting taking place? Are you happy enough? that, um, you know, that it, it served its purpose. Oh, absolutely. I think it's right for me as the spokesperson for the main opposition party uh, to meet with the ambassador, um, to raise the concerns that I have and the Irish people, um, not just in terms of what's happening off the coast of Ireland, but what's happening uh, within uh, Ukraine. Um, and I called on the ambassador um, to push for a de-escalation. And a de-escalation just has to happen from the Russian side, but it also happen, needs to happen on the NATO side, because whilst there's naval operations being carried out on the southern coast, NATO are also carrying out similar naval operations in the Mediterranean with a much larger uh, fleet. Um, so there needs to be a de-escalation. Uh, no more sabre rattling. We need a, a diplomatic uh, solution. And if I can be part right. of putting pressure on uh, to ensure that the territorial integrity of Ukraine is, is protected, that there is a diplomatic solution, okay. and also putting pressure on the Irish minister, who right. should be doing his job pushing for a solution right. at the UN. Okay, um, there we will leave that. Uh, my thanks to John and to Cahill. Uh, next, we look back at the big stories of the week. Stay with us. Welcome back. A survey of students in higher education has revealed shocking levels of rape, sexual assault and harassment. It was carried out last year across all third level institutions and reveals up to a third of students have been raped. Well, I'm joined now to discuss this and other stories um, this week by Miss Ireland, Pamela Uba, News Talk presenter Andrea Gilligan and broadcaster and journalist Fanula Moran to look back at the big stories. Let's start with that sexual assault survey. You know, when I saw that statistic, 34% of those that were polled, 8,000 students, 3,500 staff across all third level institutions, um, said that they had experienced, you know, non-consensual sex, what they were describing, what is the definition of rape? Andrea, did that, did that shock you? Did it surprise you? It did, yeah. I actually, I was really surprised when I saw the figures today. And I suppose the, the extent of this particular data that we have of both students and those working in um, third level institutions, like for 34% of those surveyed to effectively say that they, they were raped, mm -hmm. you know, at, at some stage when, when this um, survey was carried out. I, I thought it was, aside from the fact that it's such a shocking indictment of, of Irish society, but I was really surprised at the extent of the figures um, today, like over, over 34%. And like, when you look through the rest of the data, I know they're taking some positives from it in the sense that like there's, you know, students feel mm -hmm. comfortable when they're in their college surrounds, uh, students feel quite comfortable as well, you know, within kind of the, their social setting, within their accommodation. But it just shows you, I suppose, the, the huge body of work that there is to be done. And, and it comes at a time and in a context, Claire, as well, where like, you know, there's, there's so much talk about um, gender-based violence, sexual violence, sexual assault against women. Like when I like, think back to my own time in school, in college and like it's not that terribly long ago I don't really ever recall there being a time where there was so much discussion 
around this yeah. issue. And obviously it's great that, that there is. And we look, when we look at the figures today, there's, there's a need for so much more of it. But like 34% is a, it's a huge figure. Yeah, did it yeah. surprise you, Pamela, when you heard that? No, because myself coming out of college quite recently, even in friend groups, I would hear about certain situations. Um, a friend of mine um, would have been in that situation as well. And it's very appalling to say this, but rape culture does ex exist and, you know, assault against women, gender-based um, assaults or sexual assaults, they, they still exist. And I think the, the reason that it's so in our media right now is because of more and more women are trying to speak up about this because if we don't speak up about this, nothing is going to change and we need that change to happen because you can see in, in the media, you go out, you're in a disco now. I myself wouldn't feel safe to go out in the nightclub anymore because you have people who are now, instead of roofing you through your drinks, they're roofing you by injecting you with stuff and that's crazy to say that that's the society we're living in now. So when is it going to be safe for women to be able to go out in these situations and why is consent a thing that is not being actively taught? Yeah, that, that's, the, that's something that has been brought up immediately actually in the aftermath today of this survey about the need for consent education. Nula. Absolutely. I'm actually back in college again and it's like really reassuring to see the great work student unions do all over the country. I'm back in DCU and they've got consent classes. Now they're not mandatory at the moment and Simon Harris is pushing for them to be mandatory in colleges across the country. But we need to start so much earlier than that. If I think back to my own sex education in school, I only finished school in 2011 and at the time we had people flown in from America to teach us abstinence and that was the be all and end all of our sex education. So it's no wonder that we have these insane, horrendous statistics, which, while they're distressing, are not surprising. We have three women on the panel today. I would be the one in three that those stats talk about today. And it's there's so much work to do. And I think sex education, from the earliest education, we can bring that in from all the way up through not a single consent college by the time you are well beyond the age of consent in this country um, is the way to go about tackling that. Well, let's hope we can welcome these reports in shining a light Absolutely. on the issue because if we, if we don't know what's happening, how can we deal with it? Um, just to, to move on to what, what's been a really big week for the country in terms of the restrictions being lifted, um, the announcement last week and how we are all dealing with that. Um, it's interesting because da data that was released this week by Bank of Ireland showing that social spending by all age groups climbed 26% last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Just, do you know what? It's like, as people were deeming it on Instagram, it's Freedom Day was on Saturday. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was really good to see restrictions being lifted and we somewhat you know, getting our lives back, getting to go out and socialise, because people need that. And hopefully we'll be able to still manage, because we're going to have to live with COVID at some point. So we have to learn how to manage that, but yet still have a sociable um, society, because we're social creatures at heart. I know, and learn to socialise again and feel comfortable in doing that. For those of us for whom it is comfortable, for others, there are, of course, vulnerable groups and, and they feel perhaps even more vulnerable with what's happening, Andrea. Um, but on a, a big issue that came to the fore, which was uh, what we've been doing, a lot of us, for a lot of the time, which is working from home, and now this, these laws that will look at the right to request uh, to work from home. Uh, there was a lot of attention on that, on, on it perhaps not going far enough for some people who'd like the option of, of staying at home and for their employer to 
to, to say it. They're yeah. a lawyer. Look, I'm, I'm entitled to this. Yeah. And like, you know, I suppose we're all trying to find that positive legacy to come from the last 22 months. And for a lot of people, it was the move back home to, you know, maybe they're wherever they're from or their home county and been able to afford to buy a house and all of the stuff that so many people wanted to do that they couldn't do, you know, pre-pandemic living in the larger cities. People have had that opportunity. They've done that. They've bought the houses. They've got the Dublin salary, maybe living in, in Donegal. And now all of a sudden they're thinking, great, sure, we can work from home. And this bombshell lands on Tuesday where it's actually, it's now a right to request uh, to get that opportunity to work from home. Like, the Thomas Lily of Radker came in for a lot of criticism about this during the week and some of the unions and those in opposition and Labour obviously really piling on the pressure to, to make this a right to work from home and, and not just to give it the request. It's I think it's going to be very difficult. I think it's going to be very hard to please everybody in this. Like people did what they were asked to do and people made it work. I don't know that that necessarily, you know, is a kind of a barometer, barometer for it being a huge success. People mm -hmm. just did what they had to do. Um, but like there are so many industries, Claire, for which I just think this is very hard to make this work. Mm -hmm. um, I think particularly in a lot of creative industries, and that's not to say that it can't be done. Of course it can. But I think there needs to be that level of flexibility. And I know on the show, like on, on Lunchtime Live during the week, we were chatting to callers about this. And like employees too need to be flexible with employers. Like I spoke yeah. to, to one particular um, employee who their employer wanted them in, say, for instance, on a Monday, Tuesday being compulsory plus one other day. And like they weren't happy with that. You know, they, they wanted to not have the two days compulsory in the office um, that they were told the days they had to come in. But I think for this to work and for there to be that balance, like there's just going to have to be a huge level of flexibility between everybody. Like, Yeah, there is this idea and it's something that's certainly taken hold in the US and probably over here as well, the big resignation mm. that people for whom, you know, their job isn't working for them. They've worked to, that the pandemic has really put the focus on their lives. And now if an employer is saying, no, I need you back in the office, that you can say, you know what, there are other jobs out there, there are other bosses that will give me the flexibility that I want in the job and I'll leave. Do you think we're going to see that more Oh, more? massively, massively. And I already have friends getting dragged back into the office and they've been able to work from home perfectly for two years now, as you say, made it work. And there's just no degree of flexibility coming from employer sides in some positions. And then this whole thing of bringing it to the Workplace Relations Commission, if your request is denied, people in my age bracket, I don't think you're going to do that. If you're meeting all of this resistance, you're just going to go and look somewhere else if you're in a position to do so. So while some people are doing this presenteeism, everyone back into the office five days a week, I think they will really struggle with talent retention in the job market that we're heading into now. And especially when there's other companies looking at really progressive things like four day weeks at the moment. So Yeah, there are a lot of pressures on. We talked about it in part one, just about this issue of burnout and the, the pressures that are really facing people now, not least the cost of living, Pamela, and the CSO saying that food prices have started to go up um, with price increases recorded right across a range of products. We hadn't sort of heard that to date. It seemed to be elsewhere. Certainly we're familiar with with fuel and um, with our energy prices. Now it's hitting the supermarket shelves as well. I think that a lot of this um, increases in all areas also stems from the pandemic and the way we as consumers get stuff into Ireland, you know, we need to outsource a lot of the stuff that we have. And a lot of people are starting to now get in, let's say, the gas and all the fossil fuel energies mm -hmm. from these fossil fuels that are running down and are depleting. Mm -hmm. So in places where we buy, a, let's say, we get a lot of stuff from China while they're stocking. So prices increase for us then because we we need to collect those um, that get the energy in as well for ourselves yeah. so that creates an increase 
a stark yeah. increase. And then you have the Ukraine and Russia situation. Those kind of situations can also affect pricing on um, different things that we need yeah, for every day. Level, it's really made us look at our supply chains and where we're getting everything from. Mm -hmm. um, isn't that right, Fanula? Like this is okay. certainly your area. You're looking at the area of this. You're looking at sustainability as well. Um, we're really, the, the focus is on that now, isn't it? Totally. Back to Eamon Ryan's salad boxes in the windows, I think you said in the first lockdown there, so we'll all be trying to grow our own veg in the back garden now. <laughs> but um, yeah, even with minimum unit pricing for alcohol, I just think consumers are getting hit from every angle at the moment. As Pamela mentioned, fuel prices, heat in your home, electricity bills, it's all just going up and up and up. And you're kind of looking around thinking, where are you going to get a break? Whether it's like house prices going up and rent going up as well. So yeah, if people are getting punched in the pocket with food as well, I've been listening to a lot of the reports this week and it just seems like people are really Really, really stretched and um, so I think for people my age that will probably lead to some emigration if it's just across society prices going up in all areas yeah of course we're hearing that the economy is is booming now so you know make it make sense that's what many will be saying that's what many will be saying um, just on to uh, a story that blew up online um, the big the, you know forget Ukraine and Russia Taylor Swift versus uh, Damon Albarn in a Los Angeles <laughs> interview published on Sunday Albarn accused Swift of not writing her own songs you don't mess with Taylor uh, do you Andrea <laughs> listen I'm a huge Westlife fan so I'm probably not the best place in terms of the uh, this go writing and um, yeah the singing of other people's songs I just think it's such a non-story for me personally um, I know this has totally blew up on Twitter in recent days I was astonished well, she has her army of fans so anything yeah, yeah so so Irish. if you're going to get, you know, an ageing frontman coming out saying, Ash, or forget about Taylor. Sure, what about it? Look, I mean, she'll play here in Crow Park and she'll sell out and no one will be any the different about it. <laughs> like, it'll yeah, just... which side were you on, Pamela? Is, is <laughs> well, it a story you know that grabbed you as it did uh, Coming from the oh, a lady of many talents um, where where I, I have my pageant background and I have my scientific background it, and you have an elderly man going out there saying, Oh, she doesn't write her own songs. Sorry, but you know what? She, he, he made statements that aren't true about Taylor because you know she has claimed her her reputation by all the hard work she puts into her music, and it's obvious that she she does write a lot of her songs and she's worked out. I'm sure she's written songs for a lot of people, so that's just throwing throwing some shade into somebody's work that you don't know enough background into. So I think that's really unfair and it's really, you know, again, another way okay. to put women down. Okay, Penelope, we didn't get to ask your opinion on it, but, you know, give it up <laughs> okay. Hold it down, really it's secure in 2015. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm seeing a trend here from him, but yeah, Taylor Swift all the way. Okay, okay, <laughs> my thanks uh, to Penelope, to Pamela and Andrea for joining us. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.